Hi, welcome to DevMode FM, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Patrick Harrington from Mildly Geeky in Boston. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Jonathan Melville from MDD. I'm Marian Nulevant in Portland, Oregon. Great, and today we have Laura Shields from The Nerdery. Laura, thanks for joining the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great. Today's topic, we're talking about accessibility on the web. Laura, again, thank you for joining. And first, tell us, tell us a little bit about you, what you do at the Nerdery, and why you're here to talk about accessibility. Sure, yeah. So I'm a front-end developer at Nerdery, and I've been doing mostly accessible type of websites or products for the last couple years at Nerdery, um, along with other random stuff. But it's really been a focus of mine. I've enjoyed it quite a bit. And as a company, we definitely have a focus on that as well. It's, I think it's kind of a, it's a growing part of web development and a necessary part of web development. Um, so I love sharing as much as I possibly can about web accessibility, um, especially if it's other front-end devs. It's super fun to talk about. Very cool. Yeah, I want to get into that. And, you know, is it every project has some accessibility component or are you brought in for... You know, specialized ones that have needs for 508 or, you know, we can get to the WCAG, AA, AAA. Yeah, really excited. First, I thought we would go around uh, and talk about everyone's uh, experience with accessibility. Is it something that you are actively thinking about on projects, actively selling in projects at a high level just to see where everyone is? Andrew, you want to jump in first? Yeah, sure. So I've written uh, a blog article about accessibility. <clears throat> and really, the, the extent that I've done much with accessibility is just I've built in the automated uh, A11Y uh, testing into every site that I do. So it just spits out a report, tells me everything that might need fixing, and I go in and fix it. And But that really is kind of the extent of it. I haven't had any clients that have told me, you know, you must do something with accessibility, and it's not something that I have tried to upsell people on either. Uh, in terms of getting them to do it. The the actual reason why I've implemented it at all was really, just really from a best practices point of view. Like I figured this is something that in addition to speed tests and, you know, checking the CSS and all that stuff, I probably should be running accessibility tests on it. And that's, that's about the extent of it. Right. Jonathan, how about you? Yeah, so I would, my philosophy is probably similar to Andrew in that we're not actively trying to upsell clients on accessibility, but we do try to be good citizens about it. So um, we, we try to implement uh, best practices uh, where we can, but usually clients, um, they've, it's, never, it's never come up as something that they wanted to put like a real focus on or devote extra development dollars to. But so we're, we're not ignoring accessibility, but we could certainly do better uh, with it for sure. If someone is going to pay you to do it, you'll do it, right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Usually those dollars are going to things like search engine optimization and stuff like that. But, Which right. accessibility can also be good for. So right. That's true. we'll get into that in a That's little a good bit. That's a good point. What is good for humans is good for machines. Marion, how about you? I guess I'm in about the same boat that I know it's a best practice and I have good intentions and I almost never am given the 
time and money to do it. Great. Yeah, and this is Patrick. I, I you know, I'm fortunate enough. I live in Boston and uh, did a little bit of volunteer work with Perkins School for the Bl- for the Blind back when I was uh, in college. And I remember being amazed seeing, um, just because I was a real computer nerd, seeing people who were using JAWS Reader back then. I mean, this was still I don't know, we're on I five, I six maybe. But the way that they could hear JAWS read these items across a web page in such blistering speed and still be able to pick on exactly what was what was on the page. Um, it was always interesting to see, you know, what a difference it would make when someone was, you know, back then just using basic semantics, doing their headings properly, doing unordered list properly. And, you know, it was always so interesting to see. That's, I guess, the first time I really got interest in accessibility. And I think I'm in a little bit in the same boat. I've done some specialized accessibility consulting, one for a retailer where, uh, you know, retailers have gotten in trouble when they haven't done their due diligence on accessibility because it's like shutting people out of their, their e-commerce store. I've done a little bit of that, but it, it's always something where there's never been a proper audit. Um, I'm always wondering, am I doing enough? So yeah, I- eager to hear, Laura, about how the nerdery approaches accessibility and, and what you're doing specifically. Yeah, totally. Um, it kind of depends. Like you guys are saying, some clients do come in with that specific requirement up front. They say, You know, I either am a federal agency or contractor and I have to have this Um, as of this year, actually, just within the past couple months here that went into law, um, which we can talk a little more about that. But other clients say, you know, I've heard about this. I think it would be good. You know, does that cost extra? What can we do? And then other clients, you know, may not know about it at all. And we just kind of during intake will say, like, is this something that you're interested in? And talk about that a little bit. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, how do you get client buy-in? Uh, let's say it's a client that's come in. They, you know, they're looking at whether it's a brochure site or some sort of a landing page. Um, but you know that there's going to be content on that page where even if a front-end developer, you know, is minding their H1s and H2s and their unordered lists, and you know, hopefully they're being really smart and they're not, they're treating buttons like buttons and links like links. But you know that there's more. There's going to be animation. There might be visualizations. What what's the process? Do you say, hey, you know, we're we're we could build it in a way that we have nice visualizations and it's going to look great for people without a screen reader or without some sort of a need like that. But here's what else we can do. Um, how do you get that client buy-in? Yeah, so so a big question, um, like you said, is always like, is this going to cost extra and how much or what kind of effort does it involve? So one of the things that you know we always really like to hammer home about accessibility is um, in the same way that fixing a bug in production is much more expensive than fixing it early on during development, adding, trying to add accessibility in later ad hoc can be extremely expensive compared to just building it into your process. So one thing is, you know, if you're thinking about it, if you're interested in it, um, it's going to definitely be less expensive and easier to implement as part of the process from the beginning than it will be to think about it later down the line. Um, Another factor to consider is that if you're not necessarily required to be compliant 100% across the board to like the WCAG 2.0 AA spec, let's say, then you could implement accessibility um, sort of in stages or in sections Mm -hmm. you could it's it's a piece by piece kind of thing you can say you know I'm going to be single a compliant across the board and these portions will also be double a or you know I'm just going to make this purchase process double a compliant but I'm not going to worry about this other part of the site or whatever 
So it's, it definitely varies and it's kind of like do as much as you can, you know, the more that you can do, the more helpful that is for people out there. But if you can't do it all at once, that's okay. People appreciate what they can get. So that's one kind of way you can approach it to say like, we don't have to do it all up front. Another way is basically just showing them the business value, right? Mm -hmm. So like, if you are talking about, you were talking about like SEO, good for people, good for machines, and talking about how accessibility could translate into dollars, you know, using statistics like one, you know, one in five or about 20% of the U.S. population has some sort of disability. Not all those disabilities will affect their use of the internet or the web, but there's a good amount of people out there that have either either permanent or temporary disabilities. And that could be a huge piece of their audience that they're missing out on in terms of business dollars. Um, and yeah, it, it was interesting. There was a, a conference I, I was at and someone made the point that I never thought of, which is that being, disab being disabled or um, having a disability is almost anyone can go become a part of that minority at any given point in time in their lives. Like, right. you, know, you can be walking down the street one day and you know, <clears throat> something happens to you um, that could impair your vision, your hearing, your motor skill. It's very easy to think that, oh, you know, 97% of my users, we know, you know we've, we've looked at this before, but someone very quickly could change from being a loyal customer to not being able to properly use your website, depending on can, life th can throw at them. Yeah, for sure. And actually, I've got a, a question for, for Laura, because, I mean, all of us here are kind of mercenaries from the point of view that if someone <laughs> pays us, like, we're going to do it, right? But the then the question is, and it's kind of what Patrick mentioned before, how do you onboard people to get clients on board to want to do this? And at the nerdery, do you have a kind of prepared script or anything like that? Because it seems like client education, at least for the the clients that I deal with, would be huge. Like most of the people that I talk to or I work with, they never mention accessibility. Like it just doesn't come up. I mean, obviously, if they're an educational institution or a governmental organization, then maybe that conversation would come up. But the businesses that I work with, not a single one, not a single one has ever brought it up to me. So that makes me think that the impetus would be on me to try to educate them if I want to get this business. Do you guys have a prepared plan where as part of your pitch, you always try to educate them somewhat on this? Um, I, I don't know specifically prepared. I think a lot of we do tend to, you know, share a lot of similar points about web accessibility, but it can be a little catered to each client, you know, depending on what their needs are. But yeah, I would say that you know, part of it is avoiding lawsuits, like not trying to use scare ta tactics on clients or anything like that. But even though federal agencies are the only ones required to conform to web accessibility at this point, we've seen private or public sector companies getting sued over and over again. Um, big ones too. Netflix was a big one target. So companies like that, that, you know, aren't actually required, it basically comes down to discrimination, right? Like the law is there to prevent people from being discriminated against. And if people feel like they're being discriminated against, whether or not it's currently, you know, written into the law, they're, they're going to sue sometimes. So one factor is, you know, bringing up the fact that like, that's a potential concern. <laughs> Um, another factor is, you know, again, the business value things that they could gain from it. There's, I, I did want to mention real quick with that. There's no way to like, really people want numbers sometimes and they're like, Hey, well, how many of my users are blind or, you know, I don't think any of my users are blind or whatever it is. The thing is like with, I know with uh, browser sniffing, you can kind of like gauge 
as many people are using this browser or this device or whatever, but that doesn't really exist for screen readers, for example. Um, screen readers run off of the operating system and not off the browser. And so that's not something that a browser would be gathering data on. Um, at least there would be would not be a repu reputable way that I know of to do that or a recommended way. So, um, so it's hard to put numbers on it. And I know that's hard for business people to say like, you know, I can't guarantee there's a specific gain back on this. But again, if you're sort of building it into your best practices, there's a good chance that parts of it won't cost anything extra. <laughs> It'll just be built in. Um, and then more functional components may cost, may involve some extra effort. Great. Uh, a couple things I want to make sure we didn't skip over, especially for Folks who may be listening and this may be their first time, you know, they've heard of accessibility, kind of understand what it is, but don't know the terms and don't know the standards. First, I was, you know, A11Y. It's like they've taken the word accessibility and carved out 11 letters. And is that what it is? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Okay. Um, okay. If you've heard of like the term I18N for internationalization, uh -huh. <laughs> same exact thing. It's just like A, 11 letters, and then there's a Y at the end. It's because Hello. programmers are lazy and don't want to type out <laughs> the whole word every time. I mean, come on. That's what it is. I think it's Twitter. I think it was the old 140, you know, it was taking up valuable <laughs> Twitter characters. Hmm. Totally. I don't know. And the other things we've we've touched on, there's you know, you'll hear people talk about. Um, I would I've always said WCAG, but WCAG or however we want to pronounce it. There's the single A standard, which is kind of doing the bare minimum. You know, not making it all flash page. Maybe there's double A and there's triple A. Laura, I'm happy for you to jump in. If anyone else though wants to, hit, you know, Jonathan, have you come across those? The other big one that you hear, and this is more in government, is 508 compliance. Anyone here have? experience with working with those standards or trying to hit them? I do from the point of view of, again, as part of my workflow, I got to get that word in there because you guys tease me about <laughs> saying it every time. But part of it is running an accessibility audit, you know, just as part of the, the build process. And I've run into it just from the point of view that I've run all of the different standards, you know, A, AA, AAA, just to kind of see what is spit out from it. But I've only gotten as far as, well, there's too much crap that I see when I do AAA. So AA seem, and, and, and single A seems almost useless. So what I do on my sites is I run the AA standard, you know? And that, I mean, honestly, that's where I got to it from, you know? I didn't, it's not from any outside influence. It's just the amount of information that was generated and how useful it seemed to me to be. So I settled on that as the standard that I test the websites that I build against. Yeah, does anyone want like a little maybe clarification about what I was? Do it, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Terms are, I know it's- Yes, please. <laughs> um, so yeah, the section 508 that was mentioned, it's part of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. So that is the, the law that was recently revised to say, hey, federal agencies, you need to be web accessible and here's how you do it. Use these guidelines that we didn't write, but some very smart internet people wrote, which is the WCAG Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. Version 2.0 is the current version. Um, and that was developed by the basically the W3C people, um, a specific group of them called WAI, Web Accessibility Initiative. I know, so many acronyms. <laughs> but these are all things that exist. TMI. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so Section 508 is just addressing federal agencies and their contractors and saying you need to be web accessible. 
And here's how you do it. Use this checklist called WCAG 2.0, which I would expect will probably be updated, you know, in the future as WCAG gets updated. Um, it's already scheduled to have an update to 2.1 in the middle of this year. No specific date yet, but, you know, again, something to watch out for. Hmm. Um, probably be, you can actually see what 2.1, you know, the progress of it already. So you can kind of have forethought into making your website accessible to 2.1 right now. Are there any notable, uh, you know, tentpole things that they're looking to add in 2.1? Um, I'm trying to think of all the things that have been approved so far. And I think it's more to do with media-based things, right? So if you have like icons that don't have visible text, you know, those say a print icon, a save icon with no print word next to it, those have contrast requirements now, um, requirements around, like I said, media animation kind of stuff, a little more information than what existed in 2.0, requirements for like preventing users from making mistakes uh, as easily. So if you're going to say exit something or delete something, instead of like you press the delete button and boom, it's gone forever, there's either a way to undo that or like an interstitial confirmation that says like, are you sure? Um, so different things like that, that just kind of like enhance what's already there, but it does not replace or remove anything from 2.0. It just adds on to it. So no um, breaking changes. Right, exactly. I like it. But going back to, sorry, all those terms that we were talking about. So section 508 um, is now explicit about what you need to be web accessible. Section 504 which is the part of the Rehabilitation, Rehabilitation Act that applies to institutions that receive federal funding. So like you mentioned, universities and things like that. They don't have any explicit guidelines in Section 504 that say like, this is how you meet, this is how you are not discriminating on the web. So those people or institutions, they tend to just follow the same as the Section 508 guidelines, right? Because that is explicit and tells you what you can do to be web accessible. Um, versus Section 504, that's basically like, hey, don't discriminate. So, so yeah, WCAG, or, you know, however you want to say it, is the mechanism that the checklist that people use to figure out what they need to do. Like Andrew was mentioning, there's three different levels, single A, double A, triple A. What is specified in Section 508 is double A. So that is most, what most people are striving for is to be double A across okay. their I did it completely set. by accident, but apparently <laughs> I'm going to be Section 508 compliant. All right. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, one of the biggest things for me, you know, I have uh, red-green color blindness, uh, which is not severe, but it's enough that you know, my daughter thinks it's really funny when she can show me something and daddy can't see like the number inside the, the, you know, the circle of dots. Uh, so that's great. At least she doesn't have it. And it's interesting, though, because it, it is something that I found I'm more sensitive to. And that's one thing that I think a lot of developers need to do is, you know, push back on designers when they see something like that come across. Because I know there are some color contrast requirements in WCAG AA, you know, making sure that you don't, you know, that there's sufficient difference between a foreground text color and a background. And, and th it's smart enough, too, to know that if it's a larger, you know, I think 18 point plus, which I don't know why we're using points, everything's either pixels, but anyway, you know, to know that if it's a larger font or a bold font, you know, the, the, the guideline isn't as strict. But that was something that I remember finding very early on really satisfying to, to push back on designers that when they have, you know, their, their tan on beige layout down in the footer, um, to be able to point to a metric that says actually 
this is bad. That, you know, this is not going to help anyone. It's act actively making it harder for me to even view the site, let alone someone else. Um, and, as, and as a designer too, like smaller text just looks prettier. So <laughs> you, you sort of have to, or at least I find myself fighting this. My inclination is to set type at very small sizes because I think, I personally think it looks more attractive, but um, extremely hard to read. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, um, that's like those examples specifically, you're saying like text size, color contrast. Those are great examples to point out that don't have to cost any additional effort, um, you know, onto a project. If it's considered from the start, if the designer knows I need to include these things, then the design will just be made that way and the site will be built that way. And, you know, it's, and pass all the tests. And so that's a really easy thing to achieve, but it, it can be difficult because I know designers, like you said, love a million shades of gray and how they can layer those. <laughs> designers love putting text on top of images you know it's just a trend to have like those kind of overlays and there can be conflict there with the image if you're not using um a an a, like an overlay uh color basically yep and it uh, can make a difference there's a i won't name names but there is a uh a chain that sells craft beer up here in new england i think they're across new england now and they just did a web redesign beautiful design beautiful new logo uh, but they have a kind of a dark green background, and on top of that is red text. I could not find their locations link, and it was a very thin typeface as well. And yeah, I, you know, if I had to guess, I would think that somewhere there was a team of designers, all with their you know retina displays, they can pick up that thin typeface really nicely, and they have you know no issues with the cones in their eyes being able to you know distinguish between reds and greens. And, and yeah, it's a it, you know. I'm sure they, you know, weren't thinking that a significant, I think it's males have like a larger significance of red, green color blindness, but um, it's amazing. I, I've, I need to send them a note just because it's, it's hard for me just to see where they're opening a new location now. It's hard for me to find that embedded in the, in their header. Yeah. Especially for calls to action like that. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's important that you contact them, right? Because yep. I'm sure they didn't design it. If I can find the contact us link. Well, <laughs> uh, okay. Bring your daughter over and she'll help yeah. you find it. Okay. But it's, my, it's that green text on the red background on the footer. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. My yeah. point is that, you know, I'm sure they didn't design it trying to make it so that they would turn customers away. Right. Yeah. I'm sure they yeah. just designed it because so they're obviously unaware of it. So it's important that you do contact them and say, hey, look, oh, yeah. know, this is a yeah. thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So moving along, how, Laura, do you maintain accessibility compliance after handover? You folks at the Nerdery, you know, I'm sure you work with a number of different CMSs and you're trying to build tools into the CMS to make sure that they hopefully are keeping up with the, all the hard work you do at launch to, to get that in there. How do you maintain accessibility compliance? And then I also want to think about, you know, people trying to use accessibility for almost dark patterns of trying to, you know, stuff keywords into their alt images or, you know, I'd like to talk about that as well afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. That can, like you said, that can be tricky um, because there's a maintenance component that as a developer, you might not be either have control or be in charge of any of the content that's being added. Um, you can only do so much when you're making the functional, you know, the forms and tabs and all that good stuff work, but then you've got all kinds of rich text editors and stuff that um, people can go crazy on. <laughs> yep. 
So we do like to do training um, with the clients uh, whenever we can to show them the kinds of things that like, you know, yeah, what what is alt text? When is it appropriate to have alt text? Um, if you're going to make modifications, you know, consider these things. Make sure that you're adding descriptive text to your buttons and links. Yeah, but not even just when it's appropriate to have alt text, but what is good alt text, right? Because a lot of people have no idea what good alt text is from a screen reader point of view. No, I'm being, I'm being completely serious because you, what you might think would make sense to put in there. If you actually show them how a screen reader then goes through and reads it, they would understand that it didn't really make sense. You know what they were putting in there for alt text. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've run into this. So what, what does make good alt text for an image that's on a page? It's pretty much all based on context. Right. So, well, give me a bad way- example. Give me a really, <laughs> apart from none, give me an example of what would be really bad alt text to have. Um, if it's like completely <clears throat> repetitive, um, that's not very helpful. So, I'm trying to think of yeah, like a great example. Or if it's like completely decorative, yeah. it's adding nothing to. <laughs> and I've had that discussion, I think, just in the last week or two. We we're doing some training on a site, um, older site that's being ported over to Craft CMS, which is, you know, what this podcast is kind of loosely based around. And there were some questions. It's a government agency. They were concerned that you know there were places on the site where there weren't alt text, and we came into the discussion of um, should we just have null alt text on many of these images. And I think that's you know a, a thing that many people don't know. So the worst thing you can do, absolute worst thing you can do, is have an image tag on your website. If anyone learns anything coming from this, if they have an image tag without any sort of alt tag on it, that is a really bad thing, because a screen reader is going to go to it and say, "woman dash dog dash smiling dot jpg," because they you know for all they know that's helpful information. You haven't told them anything otherwise, other than the file name of that best case you know at least put a, a it could just be the alt tag with no you know no attribute on it or, or well, i guess the attribute with no value assigned to it um you could put alt equals blank at least that will tell the the screen reader or the user agent you know we are not we are saying that there is no information that the user could benefit from on this image um whether intentional or otherwise uh, i think for me it always comes down to will the user be helped in their user experience by knowing what is on this image? If it is an infographic it ha- and it has text, that's a no-brainer. Um, that absolutely must have all text. And I think there's also like a, a long text attribute as well that you can use for longer volumes of text, maybe on an infographic. You know, it, Here's I, where I, I get conflicted, know. though, Patrick. Yeah. Like, I, I totally get it that if the image doesn't add anything to the page and it isn't something, if it's purely decorative and it doesn't add anything to the page then having the screen reader read it, like, what's the point, right? It doesn't add anything, you know, who cares? Yep. So that's the accessibility side of me. The SEO side of me says, we really should have an alt tag for this thing because it's going to help um, Google and other bots index this image and it's going to show up in search results. So which, I mean, do we just do we just pick or do we try and figure out what's more important to our client or what do we do in, in those cases? Yeah, it's a great question. So first of all, let, let's take, you know, the, the contact us page for any business to business website is a picture of a, an attractive person sitting there wearing a headset, looking, you know, ready to take your call. 
and we have his image tag. Maybe you know you should have done the background if you re really wanted to get around this stuff. But um, if you have that, I mean, yeah, the question is, do we do we go alt equals blank? You know, no person who has a screen reader wants to you know say, okay, your H one is contact us. Here is a picture of a smiling man wearing a headset, looking ready to take your call. And now here is you know call us from hours nine to five, etc. I don't think anyone wants to know that there's a smiling person there. To your other question, you know, should we use that as a resource to help, you know, use keywords, help try to get a, a boost out of that? I, I feel like, A, that's, personally, I feel it's disrespectful to that percentage of the population that then is going to hit every page and start getting, even if it's a well-crafted sentence rather than keyword stuffing. You know, I think that would be a really tough experience thinking, again, thinking back to the people that I worked with at Perkins School for the Blind, if they had to go to a web page and hear you, you know, not you, but hear someone uh, talk about uh, their key performance indicators stuffed into an alt tag, that would be really rough. Well, I mean, I mean yeah. I'm not talking about necessarily stuffing something in. So an example, let's say that we've got a client I work with, they, um, they do loans, right? And one of the categories of loans that they do is for weddings, right? So on one page, they've got this, you know, picture of a, a girl in a beautiful wedding dress, right? And it really is this kind of fluff and it's filler. And I don't know that a screen reader necessarily needs to read, you know, beautiful woman in, in a wedding dress. However, search, image search is 26% of search. And if someone Googles like wedding dress and they see this image, and now that Google has removed the ability to just view the image, your only choice is then to click on visit site and then someone visits the uh, the site, at, you know, to look at this pretty wedding dress, and they see, oh, I could get a loan for my wedding. I could get that dress, that beautiful dress. You could say that, you know, there there might be an advantage from an SEO point of view to do that. And I guess where's the line? Like, do we know what the line is, Laura? Like, when when does SEO win, and when does uh, when do accessibility concerns win regarding this specific thing? Do you say yes to the dress? <laughs> I always say well, yes to the dress. <laughs> one thing I will point out is that um, if you were really trying to make sure like an image is being picked up by machines, but not screen readers, um, there is a way to do that with Aria. Oh, yeah, the Aria Polite, right? Aria Hidden. Oh, Hidden. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Um, so the, the Aria attributes will tell screen readers, give them information, but... You could still have that image, you know, very machine readable and just say, hey, screen readers, you don't need to read this. You solved it. That's the answer. <laughs> Provide the alt tag, but tell screen readers, ignore it. Perfect. Right. But yeah, I mean, to your point about, you know, um, the, the information that a sighted user is getting and how how much of that should we be giving to non-sighted or low vision users? And it is, it can be a gray area, but in general, you want to try to replicate that same experience as much as possible. Uh, and then again, if there are certain things that are duplicative or just don't make sense contextually, that's when you can maybe leave them out entirely because it would be annoying, right? Like if I have all my social media icons in the footer and I have a Twitter icon and then I have follow us on Twitter texts and I have a Facebook icon and follow us on Facebook texts. Like there's no need to be like Facebook, Facebook, Twitter, Twitter, you know? Right. Um, so you can just hide the, you know, Aria hidden or whatever, hide that image portion from 
screen readers, but um, they'll still get the the meat of the information, which is you know the link to follow them on Twitter. Yeah, I remember making a, an SR hidden class and an SR SR only class that I could just and then apply to stuff as I'm going through, mm-hmm. just as kind of like a an easy way to do that type of thing. So yeah, that's that's great advice. Aria is also useful if you're doing something like modals or overlays. So this is going to be very weird on a screen reader, but you can hint to it that, you know, this is hidden content essentially. Yeah. And as well, you can, uh, you know, and, and this may be what you're saying, but yeah, you can see this is a live portion of the screen. This div right. just came up and, you know, let the screen reader understand that this is, should be the point, point of focus now, kind of redirect. Yeah. Like, to say polite or more, I can't remember the, Laura, you may know, but there's like a polite nod that, hey, you may want to direct your focus over here or a more aggressive, like, stop what you're doing, redirect the DOM over here now. Yeah, assertive is like very interruptive. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, one thing to point out though with Aria, because sometimes people, they find out about Aria and they really get excited and use it a lot, which is great that they're excited. It, it really is meant to be used sparingly. Um, actually, I was at an accessibility meetup the other night and the host said use it like salt on your <laughs> meat. You know, you, you're not going to dump it everywhere. It's not going to be very good. So um, ideally you're building up everything as much as possible with just pure semantic structure and content and logical flow. And only then once you've you know done all of those things and there are still gaps there for example like you mentioned with an interactive component you know something changes on the page but there's no way to convey that it changed then you can use aria so it's really not it's really meant to be used minimally <laughs> yeah it, do you know and and, and want to then get into screen readers and how can people test this uh, yeah it's one thing if you have the budget on a project to bring in a compliance firm and do a, a specific audit you know i've seen firms that do that where where are things right now when it comes to JavaScript is ta- is changing the way that web pages are built and presented and passed down you know React components and view they're putting things how do how do you find that modern screen readers are handling that are they doing well with it and what does the landscape even look like these days is it still is JAWS still used quite a bit is it voiceover on the Mac what what does that look like yeah yeah it, that's a great question. So most of the data that we get on screen readers, at least um, in the US, comes from the WebAIM surveys. Uh, So if you guys have seen or heard of webaim.org, it's an awesome site. I would also mention for, as a side note for WebAIM, they have probably the best article that I've seen on alternative text and when, how contextually to use it. So if you just look up WebAIM alt text, that's a great resource. But yeah, going back to their surveys, they conduct surveys every couple of years. Hopefully they'll do it a little more frequently in the future because I think there is demand now. But they basically go out and ask people, you know, what kinds of screen readers, what browsers are you using, what mobile devices, etc. All those, they gather all those statistics and provide that back to the community so that we can get an idea of what should we be testing on. Uh, there are other places that do surveys like that. Um, actually, gov.uk has done surveys, but they, since they're over in Europe, they may be using some things that we aren't 100%. But in any case, so WebAIM's probably the best one that we use right now to figure out those environments. 
um, and try to understand what are people actually using. And the most recent survey was just done within the last few months here, so it's pretty fresh. JAWS is still the most popular screen reader, and on desktops in general, PC screen readers are more popular than Mac screen reader, which is primarily voiceover. Um, JAWS, though, for developers, JAWS is a $900 yeah. license <laughs> or more. And they do have a demo version. It's like a 40-minute trial thing. So, you know, you have to reboot your machine every 40 minutes or whatever to use it. Um, <laughs> but that actually explicitly says in the EULA, like, this is not for development and testing purposes. <laughs> yeah. It, I remember looking at that years ago thinking, you know, could we have an accessibility lab? I used to work at a at a larger Boston firm. And, uh, yeah, it's a little bit disheartening that they don't have some way. And obviously, you know, they don't want people running away with, you know, supposed development copies of the software and using it for you know real world but it, it just feels like it really behooved the entire accessibility movement if there was a better way for developers to be able to do real world testing of it yeah and yeah. can you comment on how, how do how do you test or how does the nerdery test for accessibility and what can the average freelancer small firm etc do to do real world testing and not just kind of hope that we're hitting all the marks totally yeah so I'd, yes, testing with JAWS is ideal because it is the most popular. But that being said, there is an open source screen reader called NVDA that's steadily been gaining popularity. That's a PC, a Windows-based screen reader, um, at least at this time. But NVDA is great and it's free. And that one we would primarily test with Firefox. Uh, mm -hmm. Firefox actually has the largest market share for people um, using screen readers. Uh, I think they just tend to add in the most support for screen readers. But if we're trying to cover our bases, well, um, Nerdery does have all the JAWS licenses. So we'll test JAWS on IE, typically, and then NVDA on Firefox, um, just to kind of have coverage there. And then voiceover is tested on Safari, which I know can be difficult for <laughs> devs want to develop on Chrome generally. <laughs> Right. And then you go to turn the screen reader on. And if you don't forget to go back to Safari and you're like, this isn't working. Well, it's because Chrome and Safari or Chrome and voiceover aren't necessarily the best of friends um, and not really what people use when they right. use screen readers anyway. So um, voiceover comes with every Apple device. So whether you're on a Mac or an iOS device, it is built in. It's part of the settings, totally free with the device. Uh, so I mentioned iOS because yes, people do use screen readers on mobile devices. And unlike desktop where PC is more popular, more popularly used with screen readers on mobile, Apple devices and voiceover is more popularly used because TalkBack, um, which is the Android screen reader that is built in, hasn't maybe gotten to the level that voiceover has yet. Mm -hmm. And I think it is gaining popularity also, but not quite there yet. And we were also having a discussion the other night at, at this meetup about <laughs> whether if you're testing on TalkBack, whether to test on Chrome, which is kind of the more popular default browser of a, an Android device versus mm -hmm. Firefox, which generally has more enhanced support for screen readers. So there's kind of a debate there, but it's such a low share of people that it's most of the time it's not even tested. My anecdotal evidence is that people who are blind are very, very 
conservative about changing their software because the learning curve is so steep. If you've got something that works, then you're going to go on using it. Yeah, no, that, that makes complete sense to me. I mean, when I, Laura, one of the things that I keep thinking about when we're, we're having these conversations is I'm thinking about the average free, freelancer or, um, you know, small agency that is, is hearing this and like, yeah, you know, we'd love to do accessibility stuff. But again, no one is asking us to do it. Are, are the people that the nerdery works with? Are they? Are you working with a lot of governmental agencies or educational institutions, or are you just really good about making them aware of the fact that this is something that they should be doing? Because I, w- I would love to be to offer this uh, as a thing that I can do, but I feel like it would require some, at least the demographic of most of my clients would require a whole lot of client education on it. So can you can you speak to? how the nerdery is able to do so much accessibility work, I guess. Is it the type of clients or are you just awesome at pitching it? <laughs> um, I think it's probably some of both and not all of our clients are having accessibility, you know, enhanced in their their products or websites as well. But yeah, I mean, I would say that we do have a fair number of like universities or clients that do feel like it, it is part of their requirements and request it specifically or ask about it. And we also bring it up, you know, on a lot of our projects and is it something that people want? And, you know, again, if, if it's based on looking at their needs and their requirements, if it's something that doesn't really add that much to the estimate, you know, why not? And as a developer, you never have to really wait for permission to do a best practice. You know, you can just add it into your code whenever you want. You just obviously want to be practical and pragmatic. And if, if it's going to be a complicated component, then maybe not so much if, if it's not a requirement, you know, don't want to charge the client for that. But Otherwise, you know, you can just kind of build it in at a baseline level, at least. Yeah, and that's something I've been struggling with. Like, should I prepare a presentation and, and a, uh, you know, a really good way of selling my client on it? Or should I just build in a certain level of it and just charge more? <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing, you know, you can always just ask, right? Like salespeople, like part of selling is just asking like, hey, is this something you want? And then they might say, well, what is it? <laughs> Do I? Yeah, and I, I feel like it, it's a you know it, it can actually help almost flush out a budget and make sure that you're able to do the work you want to do, especially if you care about accessibility. Because every time I've ever brought it up in conversation, I feel like it's in the back of someone's mind. Like, yes, we should be doing accessibility, but maybe if no one calls it out, then we can just keep on going. You know, doing whatever it is we've been doing. But once someone's brought it into the light and said, "Is accessibility something you care about?" It's really hard for them to say no and say, you know. No, and then when you know they get hit with an audit or hit with you know any sort of question or you know hopefully not but a class action lawsuit, it becomes really hard at that point if you know they've actively turned down accessibility in the past. So I think you know there's a little bit of CYA there that mm. yes, do at least enough that we can have a clear conscience about this. You know, let's make sure that our color contrasts are good and, and all that. Maybe they're not getting to the point where you know media is uh, fully accessible, and I'd love to talk about that too. Like, what are the parts of accessibility that people forget? are out there. But bringing it up, I don't think can hurt. The worst they can say is no, but it may be something that you can then say, okay, you know, this is going to be another line item, but it is important. And now we've brought it out in the open and can figure out how much of an effort to put in. Yeah, you make a really good point. I mean, I, I have gotten really good at pitching performance 
to my clients because yeah, it's kind of my thing and I, I, I do a lot of that kind of work and I can point them at studies and all that kind of good stuff. And I could do the same thing with accessibility because uh, a, a lot of it is client education. They may not know that one in five people has some kind of a disability that can be relatively cost-effectively addressed on the website, you know, in terms of doing a, a baseline kind of best practices on there. And I think if you talk to businesses in business terms, like why would you turn away one in every five potential clients? Or why would you make the website difficult for one in five potential clients to navigate it? You know, you're, and then you can also do this, the same kind of things that I, I do with performance where you can compare um, how your site works compared to some of their competitors. And you can say, look, you know what, you can show them how good their accessibility is versus Bob's hardware down the street. Or you can flip the coin and you can say, this competitor over here, they're doing a really good job with accessibility. You know, you, that might be something that could help you out. Have you Are you involved in any of that stuff, Laura? Are you primarily doing implementation stuff? Or do you get in there and try and wrestle the clients into, into doing the right thing? Yeah, no, definitely both. Um, I... I feel like, you know, I like to get in and get dirty and understand exactly what it is I'm doing and doing implementation as much as possible. But but I love talking to clients about it. And, you know, like you said, showing competitors, that's huge. That can be an easy win. Making a case for it, you know, obviously, besides the right thing to do, um, also the potential, you know, fees if they were getting sued. You know, I, I think some number that I heard recently was if you're getting sued and fined by the government it's like up to fifty thousand dollars per per day or something crazy so it's like there are definitely business cases <laughs> to to point out and say like and high profile uh, ones yeah like yeah, target yeah yeah and and i think really the main thing again is to say like hey you don't necessarily have to do this all right now you don't have to do it all up front um do it in phases, you know, just try to get it started, try to show people that you're trying and that you are making progress and that you're not just saying, no, forget about you, you know, because people will recognize and appreciate that. And I think be a lot more patient if they know you're working on it than if you're just kind of refusing. And Laura, I have a question for you. Um, I don't know what your involvement is and what part um, of the process for working on a new project. So let's say you're working on like a content strategy or trying to figure out what this is going to look like. So since this is kind of a craft centric podcast, sometimes what will happen is, you know, trying to figure out the best way to generate some of this accessibility data from dynamic content that's coming from the CMS. It's like, well, do we use the title of the post? Do we use a caption of the image? What if the user didn't supply a caption? Do you guys sort of when you're taking a look at like the content that's going into a new site, are you actively thinking about, you know, where is this content going to come from if it's dynamic? Um, how are we going to um, allow the, the administrators of the site to supply this information? Where are we going to pull this information from? Is this part of the process and sort of thinking out where, how are we going to generate this, um, this, this content? Yeah, I would say it is. Um, and it, it depends the all types text example we use, for example, right, you you could want to say, hey, I'm going to make an alt text field in the back end, you know, admin panel, 
Um, so every time you add an image, the alt text field is available and I'm going to make it required, you know, but that's not always a good idea because you don't always want to require alt text. So it can be tricky because even trying to enforce something like that may like backfire a little bit. But there's certainly things that um, I think clients or designers don't often account for um, that you can account for as a developer in the form of, say, hidden text. Um, so I was recently working on a star rating component with a colleague of mine. And when we listened to the, the ratings on the screen reader, it said one, five stars. So basically, you can add in some hidden text, even if that content isn't there. You know, you might have to get it approved if there's a hierarchy of content people or whatever. But um, this rating component that a colleague and I were working on uh, originally it had like 1.5 stars, 2 stars, 2.5 stars, and the screen reader just read it as 1.5 stars, 2 stars, 2.5 stars, which may not, may have been confusing to people who didn't have, you know, had low vision or whatever. So we put some little hidden text in there that says 1.5 stars, 2 stars, 2.5 stars, which makes a lot more sense. It was just a really minor thing, but it's just programmatically built in so that when the user uses that component, that is what is read to a screen reader. I don't know what other people do, but I'll frequently, like taking the alt text example, I'll start with like the best case scenario. So like if there is an image and there is a custom field that allows the user to supply a caption for that image, we'll start there. If there's nothing in that field, then we'll supply the first paragraph of text from the post or we'll supply the title or something and just sort of go all the way down the line. And the last result, the last resort is like some default, you know, the, the best we can do. Um, this has sort of been my strategy for dealing with um, all text. Yeah, I think what's kind of cool is when you're developing a content strategy like that to be more accessible um, and, it, and it will affect the visual design, it often helps with consistency across the board, right? Because you say, I need a heading, I need these logical headings. These four sections all have headings and this one doesn't, it's just like an image. Is there a possibility of adding a heading in there? And now you have more visual consistency as well as the logical structure and the hooks for the screen reader and everything else. So I've often found that, again, just pointing out little things like that uh, and saying like, hey, would you consider adding some text here or turning this into a heading or whatever? Um, sometimes designers don't even realize that like, oh, you know what? Yeah, I made that change and I never went back or whatever. And they're totally fine with it. Other times it might be a little bit of a negotiation or a situation where, again, the design doesn't change visually but under the hood, we might make some adjustments as a developer for either a keyboard or screen reader user kind of thing. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I started doing when I started to think about accessibility was not having inherent sizes on H1s, H2s, H3s, H4s, or even inherent styling to those tags. Instead, completely relying on classes for that so that you can use an H1 where you know, the 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 level of description requires an H1, H2, H3 without caring about what it looks like. You can let CSS classes or you know just classes handle that, and it makes it a lot easier. If you ever do need to switch, it's a much easier swap out. Where, where, and I want to get into like how can people start using this? But before we do that, something that drives me crazy. Um, going back to HTML4, you know, you had okay, your your page title should be an H1, your subheads below that should be H2s, H3s. 
And then HTML5 came in and someone decided we're going to have sectioning. We're going to have, you know, article and footer and header will all cause their own sectioning context so that an H1 can and should have its, or, I'm sorry, a header can and should have its own H1 and an article should have its own H1. Do you find, uh, you know, I, I have gone both ways on this, but is there a consensus in the accessibility community about is this a good thing? Is it confusing for screen readers to have that many H1s? Have they caught up with HTML5 sectioning? We were uh, recently discussing this very topic uh, this week, myself and some of the other nerds. Um, Not just me. Okay, good. No, yeah, I think it's still a difficult issue. Uh, and I don't know if I have a definitive answer for you there either. But I think often, you know, if you can, it's ideal uh, to have just one. Mm. So your, your main page yep. name, you know, your article title, or if it's the homepage, it might be a hidden H1, yep. you know. Yep, on your logo, sure. Whatever. Yeah, but uh, ideal, but I think, like you said, with sectioning elements, the heading is kind of defining that section. And, you know, in the case of, in certain cases, it may make sense to have more than one, I suppose. But and I think in general, we try to stick to a single, um, but I, I could see cases for two. <laughs> yeah, any, any experience with how JAWS uh, handles that when it sees proper HTML5 outlining? Does it handle that well, or does it, you know, kind of get into importance overload in terms of everything on this page must be important. So I'm going to elevate all these H1s. Well, I think, um, and, you know, again, I am a developer user of screen readers. So I'm not, I don't speak for like the blind community. And I'd love to hear if they have different mm. here. But I think a lot of people just use headings as a way to understand the general hierarchy in navigation. And so they're, they're sort of seeing like, okay, I'm going to jump to this section now. I'm going to jump to the next section now uh, and as a way of navigating around a page. But I don't know if it's really confusing for them whether two H1s versus one H1. But yeah, I'd love to hear that feedback. Yeah, Patrick, yeah. for what it's worth, I mean, the the thing you were mentioning that you do where you style the various headers appropriately so you don't have to worry about this stuff. That also happens to be really good for SEO because we're still kind of at the, the stage where, as Laura was mentioning, that you really, I mean, you kind of do only want one and you do want the hierarchy to be there. And a really interesting thing to think about is that you can think of these bots that are indexing your web page and reading them. You can think of them a lot like a person with a disability, right? And the, the disability that the bots have is that they're not very good at understanding context at all, right? Yep. Yep. So a lot of the stuff that you're doing, and maybe this is a way that we can kind of circle back to pitching this to clients, but you can tie in and you can say, look, if we do this accessibility stuff, the bots that are reading your webpage are, are, are kind of like people with disabilities. So we're doing good stuff for them as well. So that's just uh, something I wanted to mention about that. Now, Laura, one of the things that I have done at companies before regarding performance work, and I, I got the idea, it's not my idea originally, I got the idea from, God, I don't remember, some performance expert, I don't remember who it was, but you would go into their office and you hook an appliance up that throttles their entire office internet connection down to the speed of like a 3G <laughs> cell phone. And then you make them use their own website, right? And what a way to get people on board from a performance point of view. What about the idea of going into a client or bringing a client in and putting a blindfold on them and 
they have to use their website using JAWS or something, you know, as a way to get them on board and realize how big of a deal it really is. Yeah, that that is an awesome uh, way to stir up some empathy, I think, for sure. If you introduce a client to, um, say, a, a blind user, huge impact um, right. or or even show them how a screen reader works. You know, like most clients have never heard screen readers or even heard of screen readers. So they're trying to understand and grasp what it is and what that experience would be like. Yeah, so, I feel like their first reaction and they this might be a mental reaction. They might not say it. But if you tell them that, you know, uh, your website isn't that accessible, they might say, eh, you know, does it matter? You know, and and by showing them what it really ends up being might be a way for them to really understand why it really does matter. You know, kind of a eating your own dog food kind of thing. Yeah. And even like you gave the performance example, performance is a, is a good way to tie in accessibility as well, because you have situations where, again, either everyone is temporarily abled or in a situation where, you know, say they're the classic, you know, going through a tunnel on the subway or whatever, and you lose connection. And do you have alternative text available? Or, you know, there's just different situations where the person steps out into the sun, and all of a sudden, the contrast really helps them see what's going on there versus the low contrast because of the brightness outside. So there's just all these little tiny situational um, things you could use besides disabilities to point out, you know, what is what the experience is like. Yeah, a few other things before we wrap up. One question I have is, um, and it's funny, as we're talking about accessibility, it's dawning on me, you know, this is an accessibility topic for the podcast this week, um, but there are segments of accessibility that we forget about. I think so much of it is, you know, taking things and turning them into text. Um, audio is one of those, and we don't yet have transcription on our podcast yet. And it, it I think I'm realizing I'm going to have to pony up to get this thing transcribed or at least spend a few hours uh, working on it myself because it, it, it'd be a real sin to have this great talk on accessibility and how much we care about accessibility and then, you know, kind of flip the bird to someone who has, uh, you know, some sort of um, hearing impairment and can't actually hear the podcast. Yeah, we talked um, about AMP and so we implemented AMP pages, so... Yeah, I'm going to have to start. Yeah, yeah. we're going to figure this out because, yeah. yeah, I need to have a transcript now. I can't put this up and say, sorry, guys. Let's see here. Social media. <laughs> social media is a big one. Mm. So, you know, people don't always have social media embedded on their sites, but it's a big part of the internet. And even in Twitter, they allow you to add alt text to images, um, but it's not turned on. It's not enabled by default. So that's something that you have to go into your settings and turn it on and to be able to add it. And there is a Twitter card property for this as well. And I know that because I've been implementing it Actually, just yesterday, there's a if you have Twitter cards on your site, there's a Twitter image alt tag. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Which yeah. some third party clients don't support. So it's, yeah, you either need to be using twitter.com or the official Twitter app, although the Mac one is now going away. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then like Instagram doesn't have alt text for images and videos, actually, but they do have an unlimited number of characters in their description area. So you could add some context there for people. What else is there? I'm trying to think of some of the other like social media, but yeah, like some of those minor things are forgotten about. And you know, some people maybe only advertise their stuff or have their main presence on Instagram. So they want to consider that that's a way people are accessing their content. You could mention Google Plus. Like, yeah. You could mention Google Plus, but 
nobody cares how accessible Google Plus is because nobody uses it, right? Yeah. And then you have Snapchat, which I, I they changed their interface a little bit. It's slightly easier to use, a little less gesture-based. But yeah, I find that's difficult for anyone to use. What, Laura, what do you think are a few things? If someone's hearing this and wants to get into accessibility, are there anything they could start doing today um, or, or maybe any resources, any people to follow on Twitter? There's uh, someone I follow, Steve, his last name is Aquino, A-Q-U-I-N-O, who's done a lot of things around Apple specifically and accessibility. Anything that people should read following this if they want to learn more? Yeah, um, that WebAIM site, webaim.org that I mentioned, they have a lot of great articles. There's an A11Y project site that has a lot of great stuff. There's uh, my favorite for like front-end development. Um, Hayden Pickering is a person, but he has various different websites and he does talks and stuff. And he has uh, inclusive components that design. I think it has a hyphen in the middle, but that one has some awesome, like, here is a modal, here is, you know, an accordion or whatever, and here's why we do it this way and not a different way and, you know, all that kind of explanation goes along with it. But if you imagine you're talking to a, a developer who's never done anything with accessibility at all, and they say, give me three things that I can do that will make my site better. Like, may, you know, maybe the... The budget isn't there to do a, a full treatment or a full audit or whatever, but what are what are three basic things that I can be doing that will make my the sites that I build better for people with disabilities? Things like use buttons for buttons. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Buttons for buttons, links for links. Um, headings, you know, mark up your headings appropriately. Let's see here. Landmarks marking out your landmarks with either the semantic element, like a nav element, or if it's a div, role equals navigation. Those are super helpful. Making sure your forms have visible labels. I know people love to put placeholders in their inputs, but a visible label is the best way you can go. <laughs> and not, the, not, uh, not that fancy placeholder that then transforms and shifts up when you type. Like that, That's not going to be real good, right? Yeah, I think those types of experiences... There are ways to make them accessible, but it's just like a lot of work when you natively have this ready to go and easy out, out the gate. Avoiding autoplay on things, which includes avoiding carousels. It's just good life advice. Yeah. And I, did you see Chrome recently lets you block it now, which is fantastic. They <laughs> came out with a new Chrome that you can set the setting to just block autoplay, which is wonderful. I love it. Yeah, Safari has now implemented that, and Chrome, I think, is set to release it, you know, in April or something, but yeah. All right, well, I've really enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, we need to do an audio transcript of this now. We can't let this uh, just live in a uh, MP3 format. All right, well, Lara, thank you very much. Um, it's been great having you on. Yeah, that, wrap, that wraps it up for another episode of the DevMode FM podcast. Uh, to have every episode delivered to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our RSS, or you can subscribe via iTunes or Google Play. If you like what you're doing, leave us a review. It's one of the best ways that you can help other people find out about the show. You can all follow us on Twitter at DevModeFM. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. Give us a comment on the DevModeFM website. We're always watching, and we'd love to speak with you there. For the DevModeFM podcast, I'm Patrick Harrington. I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Jonathan Melville. I'm Marian Nulifant. And a big thank you to Laura Shields from The Nerdery. Thanks, Laura. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye, guys. Thank you.